Today's reading is taken from Exodus chapter six, verses two to thirty. Exodus six two to thirty. God also said to Moses, "I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan." Where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, "I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with the mighty acts of judgment." I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give you, give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites. But they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Then Lord said to Moses, "Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country." But Moses said to the Lord, "If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips?" Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. These were the heads of their families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, were Hanok and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These were the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jamuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shehu, the son of a Canaanite woman. These were the clans of Simeon. <coughs> These were the names of the sons of Levi according to their records: Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Levi lived 137 years. The sons of Gershon by clans were Libni and Shimei. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Ishar, Hebron, and Aziel. Kohath lived 133 years. The sons of Merari. Merari were Mali, Malai, and Milshai. These were the clans of Levi according to their records. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, who bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. The sons of Ishar were Korah, Nephag, and Zichri. The sons of Aziel were Mishael. Elzaphan and Sithrai. Aaron married Elisheba, daughter of Aminadad, and sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ethema. The sons of Korath were Asa, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These were the Korite clans. Eleazar, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Peuthiel. And she bore him Phinehas. 
These were the heads of the Levite families, clan by clan. It was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, this same Moses and Aaron. Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks very much, Lickie. Um I don't know what you thought when you got the assignment to read this. <laughs> you did it really well. <laughs> Um, but we read it uh, because we believe really every part of the Bible is God's word, that it has something to say to us. And so we want to read the thing, uh, read the text, and really sit under it and see uh, what God has in store for us. But as we come to this text, let's pray that God will speak to us. Lord, we give you great praise and thanks that you are a speaking God, that you have spoken the world into existence, you've spoken the church into existence, and it is by your word that we are sustained and we are grown. And so now we look to you that you would speak to us through these words and build us up with these truths that we may be your people, people who please you. In Jesus' name, amen. National Geographic is airing on April 3rd a series narrated by Morgan Freeman called The Story of God. Um, the free, uh, Morgan Freeman, who does the voice of God for many, many movies, <laughs> he, uh, he does this story, story of God series, and this is what he says about the series. The constant uh, through it all is that we are looking for, uh, to be part of something bigger than us. One of the producers added, then we were looking at questions that all of us humans have, which is, where did we come from? Where are we going? What happens when we die? And are we here for a reason? These are some of the most fundamental questions in humanity, aren't they? they? They sometimes get lost in busy Hong Kong because we're so busy, we don't stop to think about these things. But I think if we did stop and think about where, where did we come from? Is there um, a meaning in this life? Is there a God? Then I'm sure it's something that we all want to know the answer for. But... You know, I think as we come, as we think about who is God, that question is the most fundamental, isn't it? If that question could be answered, then all these other things could be answered as well. But how are we supposed to know God? How are we supposed to know who God is? Well, BuzzFeed, that important website which tells you which Disney character, Disney princess you're most like, or which friend star that you're most like, um, also has... Five ways to look for God, how to know God. And these are one, two, three. Number one is to let go of what you already think about God. Number two is to regard every thought in your, every thought about God as coming from God. Number three is practice believing that God dwells in you already. It seemed to me that the main point uh, of that article was that God is already in you, so thoughts that you have about God are actually already from God, so start paying attention to them, he was saying. But how do we know 
that my thoughts about God are really from God because I think a lot of different things and this, not all of them are good things. Um, how do we know that these thoughts are from God? Well, we don't. How do we know then God at all? This is how we know. God speaks. Once again, this is what this text says in Exodus 6. After 430 years of silence, God speaks. When uh, God says, uh, God spoke to Moses in verse 2, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. He tells people his name. Who is Yahweh? Who is God? He is Yahweh. We can't come to know God through some inner reflection, paying attention to the, the small voice inside of us going on a spiritual quest. We can't just start regarding our own thoughts as God's thoughts. This is the only way that we can know that uh, something is from God when God speaks through his word. And he says, I am Yahweh. He starts out by reminding Moses that actually he had spoken before. He had appeared, to be, uh, appeared before, in verse 2, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty or El Shaddai, but not as Yahweh. In other words, he's saying, I am appearing as Yahweh now, but I, was the same God. I am the same God that appeared to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He was there in the past, and he tells people what he did in the past, that he established his covenant, his, his promise with his people. He heard their groaning. And when the Bible says God hears the groaning, it doesn't mean, uh, it means that he's going to respond. It's time to respond to what he has heard. Similarly, with the remembering in verse 5, I have remembered my covenant. It's not that he had once forgotten. Once again, he's, he's, when he says, I am, I've remembered, what he's saying is, it's time for me to then act on the covenant. It's time for me to honor the terms of the covenant. But once again, what he's saying was that in the past he appeared, but you didn't know fully who I was, who Yahweh was. Actually, he had addressed himself as Yahweh twice before in chapter in Genesis chapter 15, first to Abraham and then later to Jacob in Genesis 28. But when he says that I didn't appear to them as Yahweh before, I think what he's saying is that you didn't know, even though I appeared in the past, people didn't really know fully who I was. I didn't really show myself to them. His name was without content. So from verses 6 to 8, he then tells what he will do so that his people would come to know him. That will define who he is. I think it's a little bit like this. Um, if somebody asked you, who is Abraham Lincoln? You might say that he was a person born in Kentucky, that he had a wife named Mary Todd, had four children. You might even show a picture of him and say, this is Abraham Lincoln. But if you are telling somebody who Abe Lincoln is, but you neglect to tell that person that he was the 16th president of the United States, that he led the U.S. through one of the darkest times in its civil war, that he freed the American slaves, then you're really not saying the main thing about who Abe Lincoln is, right? You can't really know Lincoln without knowing that fact that he freed the slaves. It's a bit like that from verses 6 and on. What God is revealing is how he wants 
his people to know him. This is at the core of his identity. He will say, I am Yahweh and I will do these things for you. And as if to emphasize the point, he repeats his name again in verse 6. Take a look. He says, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. And then this is what he says. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with the mighty acts of judgment. And I'll take you as my own people and I will be your God. Once again, the whole thing was entirely about relationship, wasn't it? He gives his name, I am Yahweh, so you know who I am, my, what my name is. And then he says, I will bring you out. I will free you, redeem you, take you as my own people. I will be your God. What kind of God? Take a look at verse 7, in the middle of this, verse 7. He says, then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. What he's saying is, he is Yahweh God who has rescued them. He's tying his name with uh, uh, his identity to the covenant and to the rescue. He is a rescuing God. Here's what that name then meant for the Israelites. Whenever they heard that name, they knew Yahweh God as God of the covenant. God who made this promise and then God who fulfilled, fulfilled the promise by delivering them out from Egypt. Israelites knew Yahweh God as their rescuer. God is many other things. I mean, you can say all sorts of things about God. I'm sure that uh, National Geographic uh, thing will say a lot of things about God. You can say that God is omnipotent. God is uh, able to do everything. God is omniscient. God knows everything. That you can say, you can, you can even say that God is just or God is loving. But knowing these things, knowing these other things, miss the, 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 the core of God's identity. He is Yahweh God who promised to Abraham and kept that promise by rescuing them out of Egypt. That is how he wants his people to come to know him. And it's really the same with us, as we'll see in a minute, that that's what it means for us to have a relationship with God, to be God's people, to be, a, uh, to be part of God's people is to know God as our rescuer. You can know all sorts of things about God, but if you don't know him as your rescuer, you don't actually have a relationship with him. You don't really know him. Because as God reveals himself, he reveals himself, himself as our rescuer. So how do you first see God? What do you think about God? How do you relate to God? What's amazing about this whole rescue then also is from the very beginning till the end. It's something that God accomplishes. It's something that God accomplishes. The Israelites do nothing to contribute to their salvation. Let's, once again, if you take a look at verse 2. Go back to the very beginning of our text where God says, I am Yahweh. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Once again, Abraham was doing his own thing, wasn't he? He was living his life, and what God is reminding them is that God took the initiative. 
God took the initiative to reveal himself to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. God appeared to them. And we saw the list of all the eyes in verses 2 all the way through 8, both in the past and the future tense. Tenses, I am the Lord. I appeared. I established. I heard. I remembered. I will bring you. I'll free you. I'll redeem you. I'll take you as my own people. I will be your God. I am Yahweh. The whole thing was about how what God is going to do, how God himself is going to rescue the Israelites. And the Israelites are not going to do anything. They're just going to be rescued. And what happens next in the story also, I think, highlights this fact that everything is done by God and nothing is contributed. Because you might think as Moses goes to the Israelites, they might get excited about their coming rescue, right? But that's not how they react. Take a look at verse 9, how they react to this news of God's great rescue. Verse 9, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. They were so discouraged by the harsh labor, the whole straw incident, uh, that they don't listen to him. They're discouraged. They no longer pay attention to God. And Moses, the great mediator, the Moses who is the Savior in the Old Testament is not any better, maybe worse. When commanded to go to Pharaoh again, that's what Moses says in verse, this is what Moses says in verse 12. If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with the faltering lips? With faltering lips. He doesn't want to go. He said once before that he didn't want to go because he had a speech problem. He's not very good at speaking. He's not eloquent. But now, this, this time, he says literally he has an uncircumcised lips. Um, he's recalling the event in chapter 4. I don't know if you remember, in chapter 4, God almost killed Moses because he didn't circumcise his son. Uh, he's saying that he's unfit. Look, I am an unfit person. I'm too unqualified for this task. But it's as if Moses didn't listen to God's speech at all. God didn't say a single thing about Moses' Moses's greatness, his eloquence, his education, or his strengths. Verse 2 to 8 were all about God and what God was going to do. It's not because of Moses that they're rescued. It's not because God had somehow made Moses um, into a great savior they're going to be rescued. In fact, if anything, God is going to do this great rescue despite Moses, despite Moses' protest. He actually gets in the way, doesn't he? And I think this is the partial, uh, why the partial genealogy is there. Um, in, in verses 14 and on, to make this point that really Israelites don't contribute to their salvation at all. That genealogy um, goes, it's the geneal- partial genealogy of Jacob's sons. Jacob had 12 sons, but it goes up until uh, only three sons. It ends in Levi, um, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, um, because this whole thing is an introduction to who Moses and Aaron are. Um, 
because they are from the tribe of Levi. And so that's why it ends at Levi. The writer reminds, of the, reminds us of that in verse 26 when he goes back and says, It was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord, says, Lord said. And not everybody is included in this genealogy. Uh, and many people are included to highlight some of the faults of this family. For example, you see in verse 15 that Shaul is the son of a Canaanite woman, which, of course, is a bad thing. They're going to go into Canaan, uh, to, to Canaan, and they are not supposed to be to marry Canaanites. Canaanites are idol worshippers. We find out that Moses and Aaron, uh, Moses and Aaron's father was Amram in verse 18 and verse 20. But it, it's, it includes this really embarrassing detail about their family, the, the father, that Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed. Yes, the law had not been given yet, but it's just a weird thing to marry your aunt. And to, that's what happened. That, uh, Moses' father married his aunt, and the children out of that relationship was Moses and Aaron. Korah is mentioned in verse 21 and 24. And of course, the readers who were reading this or hearing this knew who Korah was. Korah was going to lead a rebellion against Moses in number 16. They will say to Moses, "You are, un- I am just as fit as you are. I am just as holy. And he, get, they, he gets a, a, a whole tribe and people together to rebel against him. And Korah is, uh, features prominently uh, in this genealogy. Uh, the whole thing, I think, makes this point. This is an unfit people. Moses was unfit. The tribe of Levi was unfit. They do not contribute to their salvation, but they often get in the way. And this is true of our salvation as well. I was reminded throughout this passage uh, of, the, of the saying that the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes our salvation necessary. Isn't that the case with all of us? The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is our sin that makes our salvation necessary. For most of us, we weren't even convinced that we were sinners when God rescued us. Sinners in need of God's rescue. If we try to save ourselves, if we try to make ourselves better and better and think that we can somehow achieve this uh, level, if you try, you quickly realize that you are sinful in your heart, that you cannot save yourself. If you try to save the world, actually, you run into the, just the same problem, that the sin in this world, sin that pervades this world, is way too big, that we need a rescuer. But God did save us, all on his own. God sent his son, he died for us, and he calls us to himself. And as he calls us to himself, you might, you might think, right? Uh, uh, people who become Christian, um, you along the way make all sorts of decisions, right? But once you become a Christian, you look back and you say, actually, all these things, God led me to do all these things. God has rescued me, even as I made my own decisions, that it was God who had arranged all these things. It's God who rescues us. 
It's God from the beginning and God until the end, until Jesus comes back. It is God's salvation. And sometimes we get in the way. Lots of times we get in the way. It's by utter grace of God we are saved. And this parallel that I'm drawing between Exodus and our salvation, you might think, ah, is, this, is this okay to draw this um, parallel? We can do a whole training course on this, but uh, Exodus does look forward to our salvation. It's a picture of our salvation. And the New Testament writers turned to Exodus to illustrate what it meant for us to be saved. Let me just say, though, Exodus in and of itself was a great salvation for the Israelites, wasn't it? For the first time, they got to know Yahweh God, not just his name, but his character, his power. Uh, God reveals himself by rescuing them. God reveals himself by then giving them the law. People were made into God's people through Exodus. It was a great salvation. Israelites will constantly look back to that event of Exodus to say, I am God's people. We are God's people. And we can see that throughout the Old Testament. Psalmists look back. The Old Testament writers constantly look back to Exodus. And so great was this rescue. Even when Israelites will get captured again in the future, they will go on an exile in Babylon. Isaiah, the prophet, imagines another exodus, that God will rescue them like they did. Uh, he did um, in the time of Exodus when God will make a way through the wilderness and through the waters again. You can read about that in Isaiah 35, 40, 43. Hosea um, in chapter 2 says similar things. And this is just one example, Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. A voice of one calling in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. And I hope you are familiar with this, uh, these words um, because Mark starts his gospel by quoting these words from Isaiah 40 in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Well, why the desert? It's another exodus. God will rescue us through the desert. Israel only entered the promised land through the desert. And Jesus is the greater Moses. That's what, that's what uh, uh, Mark is saying. Jesus is coming to rescue us from our desert. Why does Jesus get baptized? Well, partly. It's because he's true Israel. Paul will say that Israel was baptized by water in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when they crossed the Red Sea. And Jesus goes through the water as a person who represents all of the saved people, us. He will get baptized for us. Then he goes into the desert for 40 days. Why 40 days? Well, it corresponds to Israelites' 40 years of wandering in the desert. The temptation there also is an allusion to, the, uh, the, to Exodus because the three temptations are related to Exodus. And we know this because Jesus answers each one of the three temptations by quoting Moses in Deuteronomy 8, 3, 6, 13, and 6, 16. He quotes Moses to answer the temptations 
Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. Jesus then gives the law from the mountaintop. We know this as the um, Sermon on the Mount. Just as Moses did, Moses gave the law from Mount Sinai. Remember what Jesus says. You have heard it was said, but I give, I say to you, Jesus is giving the new law. He is our Moses. He is our Savior. But, and, 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 and unlike the people who broke the law, even as the law was being given in Mount Sinai, Jesus fulfills the law all throughout his life. He knows what the law is, and he does everything right. He lives a life that pleases God. But unlike God's people, he does not enter the promised land. Instead, he becomes a sacrificial Passover lamb who was slaughtered for us, who dies for us, so that we could enter the promised land. Even the name Jesus, if you know uh, a little bit of Hebrew, you know that it's Yeshua. Yeshua means yeah, that, 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 that sound is Yahweh. And, and Shua, that means God uh, saves. It means Yahweh saves. Jesus means that he, God is our Savior. From beginning to end, Jesus is our Savior. And ours is the greater exodus. We're saved from the penalty of sin, God's wrath, eternal death. And we will rise again from the dead even though we die. That's something that Moses could not have, people in the Old Testament might not have imagined. What did we do to contribute to our salvation? Nothing. Nothing but the sin that makes Jesus' salvation necessary. And we get in the way again and again. So we know him to be our great rescuer. That's what it means to be a Christian. First and foremost, not to know God as God who is powerful, not to know God as um, God who is omniscient, who knows everything, not even God who is just or loving, but that this God came. And this God came to die for us, to rescue us. That's what it means to be a Christian, to have a relationship with him, to know him as our rescuer. Let's pray. Lord, we give you great praise and thanks for sending Jesus, your Son. Lord, we are humbled as we think about ourselves, our hearts, how sinful we are. We're humble to know that we do nothing to contribute to our salvation. And so, Lord, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, to die for us. And we pray that we will know you as our great rescuer and live a life of praise and thanksgiving. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.